0: We are at December the 10th, 2017, lecture discussion number five. This is number five. I can still identify them with one hand. Pretty soon that might be a little bit more difficult. But it's number five on the book of Joel. And uh, before I get going, I have uh, somebody wrote me, sent me a package. I've passed around the plaque that they have sent identifying the characteristics of Cliffside. But they wrote me a short little letter. (laughs) <laughs> let me let me count them. Oh, I started to go through it, and now it's out of out of order. So, uh, but it's uh no maybe now now I okay here's here we are here we're number one. So you're welcome to read it if you would like. I can't do all of it. It's fantastically funny as you would expect. Uh, Dearest S. A. Chronister also known as Buane. You have to look at the device that she sent us. Greetings, Sherry from Illinois here. Hi, Sherry. Hailing from Arizona. She's in Arizona. Phoenix area, to be exact. Yes, you guessed rightly. I am, in fact, here to prove that Jennifer from Arizona does not exist. And that you do indeed write your own letters. No one will be surprised. But on the off chance I've miscalculated, feel free to forward my contact info to her. Have you done that, Dave? Does, have they found each other? Okay, so that means there's some kind of cooperative criminal activity now there. Huh? That's that's right. We should expect some kind of reaction from the, the Arizona authorities. It uh, would be great to have a cup of coffee with a fellow member of the vast Internet, uh, she says, interternet audience. As for the climate and terrain here, well, you aren't wrong to tease her. It is hot, dry, dusty, and everything is sharp and pointy. <laughs> Much like a desert, it is not fit for man or beast, reminds me of the curse of the earth in Genesis, thorns and thistles. If you fall off the sidewalk here or your brother pushes you off, you don't get a grass stain, you get a face full of cactus. With that being said, I'm not sure Alaska is any better. And you'd be right about that, Sherry. Alaska right now is pitch black and cold. Well, really, we're kind of warm today, aren't we? What are we, uh, 38 degrees? And, the, and no one can stand up because all we have is ice. Let me read a bit more here. This, I'm not going to be able to get very far because I have a full agenda. You, uh, let's see. I feel that the Arizonans and Alaskans could take a lesson from us mis- Midwesterners. For example, Arizona equals desert, rattlesnakes, scorpions, coyotes, uh, and oh, and all manner of things that want to sting you and eat your pets. Heat stroke. No water. Uh, Alaska is frostbite, bears, moose, quicksand. Do we have quicksand? Do we? We have the mud flats. You get stuck in the mud flats, you're dead. Uh, I guess that would be... And, and face-eating spiders. Do we have face-eating spiders? I don't think we do. I think that's an evaluation that I'm at least not aware of. Illinois, she says. The Midwest has fresh running water, beautiful... Illinois? You have Chicago. That's like... Fallujah. I mean, give me a break. (laughs) I'll get a letter from Illinois now, won't I? She went on to say about Arizona. There's something in the side that my eyes are not good. Um, A fungus that can that can eat your animals. It lives in the dust and can travel to your brain and and it'll kill you. A brain eating fungus. That's who could live in this Phoenix, Arizona place. It's impossible. I agree with you, Sherry. Uh, but she said, there is no cactus. There is no bears. There's no face eating uh, spiders or quicksand. The biggest worry in Illinois is governors. And I, I, I realize all of your governors are in prison in Illinois eventually. I, I, yeah. um, but I would say to you that, uh, that uh, Alaska has its advantages. Anyway, uh, there's more to this. Uh, it's amazing. You should read some of it. I, I'll, I might have to go back to it because uh, she put a lot of effort in it. Unfortunately, today I'm in a topic that I just don't have time to uh, to, uh, def- to get away from any, any more than I just did. OK, so far. Are they are they pink? OK. I, I was mentioning that a long time ago, someone wrote a long thesis on the uh, position that of Pinky and the brain. Pinky is really the intelligent mastermind of the two pretending to be the dumb one. It's fascinating reading, and I would recommend it for those of you who are interested in that cartoon. Ah, Now I'm way off. To this point in the Joel Lectures... Repetition has been the prevailing condition. You might have noticed that, and that's by design. I am a highly trained religious professional with years and years and years and years of experience, both at all levels, all the way down to the sixth grade through high school and now here, and I've been proceeding with the premise that Joel 2 and Revelation 7 through 11... To get them on the board. Joel 2, Revelation, chapter 7 through 11. Require reiteration to the point of wariness. And I know that's the case, and I know what it does to anyone trying to listen. That includes you folks on the internet. Otherwise, if you don't keep repeating, you don't make true progress. You sacrifice it for the sake of expediency. And I'm trying not to do that. In other words, I prefer you to be bored to the point of despair over the alternative of illiteracy, biblical illiteracy. And that always happens in Revelation and in this case as well in Joel. So I'm trying to fight that as much as I can. And I should note, as you are aware, this is not the recommended approach to running a church. No one does it this way. I've always done it this way. I've had to back up every Sunday in order to bring the material forward that was done in the previous lectures. It's much like Saxon math, which I used to teach, as you might be familiar. And I've said before, the current church does not do that. Current church environment loathes this kind of tactic or technique, I guess, would be better. But I have discovered uh, the contemporary conventions practiced in the church today, which, as you know, is the Laodicean church. That is who we are. I've noticed that what they do is spectacularly successful in producing unthoughtful proselytes. And that's a euphemistic way of saying idiot Christians, in case you were wondering where I was going. Passion over reason. The Christians of this era are the best of all time, of any time in church history at weeping and crying over themselves. We do that better than, there has never been a church age with as much self-focus as we have today. And sadly, without dispute, our time, which is this in times, is the most, also the most bereft of doctrinal scholarship. So we're simultaneously Ignorant and self focused. We are first in self esteem in the church today. The entire American culture reeks of illegitimate conceit, and we have the arrogance without the credentials. And that is the legacy of every educational institution, and the church is no exception. It's being done on purpose. This country, as you know, uh, of the, of the, uh, th- those countries with the, with the educational facilities that we have or that are commensurate in other countries, we're dead last in the sciences and uh, in mathematics now. But we're first in narcissism. That is us. And what could go wrong here, huh? And so we shouldn't expect the church of today to be anything but this. And it's likewise afflicted, and so it should be. That's exactly why it is. it is. It is promised in Scripture, Revelation 3.16, that the church of the end of the age will be filled with complete, total stupidity. Absolute, perfect wrong. So we should expect it. He calls it the church of vomit, as you know, and he is not here in the sense that what they what they teach about Christ is is not accurate at all. Not scriptural. It has no scriptural legitimacy. And that is true. Okay, I have to kind of move this around so that I can maintain my income stream. Yes. Yes. Well, they want God to be something that, they, that, they, that is not representative of him. As, as you know, we've done this thousands of times. They want, they want Christ to be weakened significantly. Uh, and, uh, of course, that is blasphemy, and you do not have a doctrinal position on Christ that is accurate at all. Now you have to ask yourself, if you believe in, Christ, in a Christ that is not representative of the Bible, biblical model, then what do you have? Arnold Fruchtenbaum, as you know, is well known for saying that without sound doctrine of Christ, there is no salvation. That concerns no one in the the megachurch industry today. They are perfectly satisfied to continue the way they are. All of that, really, what I want you to do, though, is that's the case. That's what's happening today. But why is it happening? Why is this element of lack of truth of Christ the dominant one in our age? Why do we have these mega churches? Why do we have all of this crying and self-evaluation and navel-gazing that's in the church today? Why do we have it? Why is this the characteristic? This is the age of these kinds of of conditions. What has happened? Of all the church ages, why is this one like this? We would have thought, wouldn't we, that the church would be powerful and resolute and champions and doing a great job. But the church is, what's the word I can use? I'm thinking. The, The church is really awful. That's, I can't say what it actually is. It's pathetic. It's rich, and it says it will be rich, but it's pathetic. Its teaching is meaningless. It's empty, but it's powerful in the sense that it has money and it has incredible crowds. Why is this the age that has that characteristic? Why is the church of, of, Lack of doctrinal truth, the one that is existing today. Why didn't it exist in the last church age or any of the previous? But this is the one where this characteristic prevails. Ask why. I'll move on. All of that to say, our little outpost here in the frozen tundra is not going to surrender to the pressures of the culture of rot and idiot, and, and the idiotical. We're going to, I'm going to try it well as best we can. We're going to march undeterred, unimpeded, uh, as much as we can. While the rest of the country, or the rest of the world at least, maybe, um, is going to submit to this kind of church condition. Hi there, young lady. How are you? Good to see you. Did you bring all the children? Because we have presents for them. Today was children present day. Yeah. So they did good. Good to see you. I'm glad your dog was found. That worried me. Whose fault was that? Your mom's fault? Probably. Huh? Yes, it was. Okay, well, good that, that that she escapes the punishment that she so deserves. Anyway, where am I? Okay, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking uh, that uh, that I'm ranting again, and that just might be a prelude to some kind of physics lecture. and you you would be right, okay? How intuitive. So and it's not my fault that we're going to do this today, mostly. Mostly not my fault. A few few weeks ago, I was brought and presented questions by various people and, and some from the Internet on atheistic mythicism, which I barely addressed. You might remember that. And within that subject, which is essentially debate on existence, as is always the result when you're confronting monistic or monism dogma. I brought up a topic within that that. Subject of mythicism, uh, I brought up Schrodinger's cat paradox, ever so briefly. And It's hard to say for me to say Schrodinger. Schrodinger, as it, uh, it I have a Schrodinger, it's the best I could do, and that isn't close. Erwin Schrodinger proposed his famous thought experiment in 1935. Now, let me put his name on the board here. Yes, I took German in high school so I can say, which means I can't find my rubber shoes. That's about all I got. And I'm really good at crossword puzzles. I took French, too. So I do very well with the with complex crossword puzzle. But Erwin Schrodinger, 1935, made a proposal, if you want to think of it that way. It's a famous thought experiment. By thought experiment they never really actually did the experiment what they did was think about doing the experiment and then they react to the thoughts and uh, the people at that level of understanding can do that very effectively and he did it as a response to the copenhagen interpretation i won't put copenhagen interpretation up here this week but eventually we'll get you as as uh, up to speed as possible uh, copenhagen had an interpretation of what's called superposed states. And you might remember this, because we have done this before. Some of you would call it superposition, and you would be perfectly fine and accurate to do so. Let's get that isolated. So essentially, again, to repeat this, Schrodinger had this thought experiment, and he was combating... The Copenhagen School of Physics and their interpretation on superposition, which is, as you might remember, we did all of this interferometry, right? This is wave function collapsing into a particle function. Do you remember any of that? If you don't, that's okay. How many years ago did we do interferometry? Five years ago or so. So if you missed that, you didn't miss much. But nonetheless, it has great value because of what its impact is, how it intersects, if you will, with Scripture. And then uh, you have observation effect. So let me repeat that. Wave function collapsing into a particle function. That, of course, is uh, typified in interferometry study and observation effect, which is also the uh, absolute observation Uh, Observer, if you will, that Isaac Newton uh, postulated. All of these are marvelous, fantastic, wonderful elements in the world of quantum mechanics, and they apply to Revelation 9. And I wasn't really intending to introduce Schrodinger until after the winter solstice and the New Year's break, other than to start subtly mentioning it over the weeks. And uh, you might have noticed that I have done that. Some of you have. But then, fortuitously, Dr. Peter from Australia wrote and encouraged me to present this at the Christmas service when the visitors will come to listen to the children sing and expect the typical Christian. What what will I call it? Monograph? No, that won't work. Uh, Dissertation? Homily? Nothing says Christmas time like dead cats. (laughs) And so why wouldn't I do that? I mean, of course, it's great. What a great idea. And I I expect the usual huge crowd, invite your friends, neighbors, Christmas dead cat day. It'd certainly be, be memorable to them talked about for years to come. That can be interpreted in uh, two different ways, which is actually a clever way of introducing the subject. i got to be fair and accurate. Dr. Peter did not suggest I talk about Schrodinger. I'm getting better at saying Schrodinger as I'm doing it here at Christmas. That is my great idea. As soon as I told Lori, um, she ran uh, from me and hit But Dr. Peter did inspire me intentionally or accidentally, for which I am grateful. Unfortunately, being that my inevitable dotage is fast approaching, I tried to remember where I began to artfully, some would say cunningly, place this topic into lectures, and I couldn't remember. And I asked Dave, I said, when did I start doing this? Was it this back as far as Hampson? I thought it was in Joel number one, but I couldn't find it. And I still haven't found it. All I found is a cryptic note from myself from November the second, where I said to myself, hi, Steve, how are you? No, uh, Actually, all my notes said was do Schrodinger's cat. Revelation nine, Joel two, because I know that if you're going to do Joel two and Revelation nine, you're going to end up doing Schrodinger, whether uh, in a way that is obviously him or a way that is somewhat uh, him. But nonetheless, you're going to be there. And so I wrote that before I finished Judges 16 or Samson. So I thought maybe it was in the Samson series and I still don't know where it is. I have a good idea, maybe, but I, I, I think it's with this mythicism. But I'm not sure for sure. And I don't know if I did it anywhere else. Um, And uh, Dr. Peter was the only one that made mention of it. And again, I wasn't uh, I need to find it and I can't find it and I need to find it because it becomes important. It's it's important because I want I don't want to leave any of the critical pieces out. As best as I can accomplish, everything needs to be included. And Schrodinger's arguments are very important. They, they intertwine with scriptural truths, whether he knew that or not. And that's because, um, and again, I'm not sure what he knew. But we'll discuss that as we go down the road a bit. But mythicism and monism is probably where I did it. And that, of course, as you know, if you were here, is true consciousness Versus false consciousness. And scripture versus mythicism versus atheism versus monism is the debate. What does the Bible say? What do these monistic, atheistic concepts teach? It's existence or nothingness. There's two things you're looking at. Either you have existence or you have nothingness. I'm sure you remember all of this. And these are the issues of the three woes of Revelation. I have... Three woes. Oops, can't spell woe. I spelled wow, which was the next woe. I just get ahead of myself. But I have three woes. Woe one, woe two, woe three. That's not an accident. This existence or nothingness is. Is intertwined, inner, intrinsic in these three woes, and thus Schrodinger's cat belongs here, and we should consider it that because of that, much to the delight of no one, with few possible exceptions. Okay, hopefully you remember Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, R.E.P.R., and you also remember John Bell, and you remember. Niels Bohr. And now to that we add Erwin Schrodinger. This is determinism and indeterminacy, if you will, or non-determinism. So indeterminacy or determinism, locality and non-locality. Let me put that on here. This is the technical language. I get it. I know it's difficult, but you will begin to understand it. It's also Heisenberg and Goodell, uncertainty principle and incompleteness principle. Hopefully you remember some of that as well. What is biblical? Which is biblical here? Was John Bell biblically accurate with Neil Bohr? This is two completely different groups. Group one, group two, if you will. Heisenberg and Goodell would be in here. Goodell, I don't have time to write Heisenberg, Heisen. I can, I did it. Yay. Heisenberg had the uncertainty principle, or the uncertainty truth of quantum physics. Goodell had incompleteness principle, which uh, actually are very similar. So I have this, this battle going on in physics between two sides. One, again, is determinancy or locality. The other is non-locality and uncertainty or incompleteness. So I have this combat going on, this predeterminism, which is what evolutionary philosophy eventually degrades into. uh, And this uncertainty, if you will, this indeterminacy, which is where I will suggest to you that the Bible is. And so to see this um, manifested in physics is fascinating to me. Let's do simpler terms. Does mankind, do the angels, do the animals, have any freedom of will at any level? Or is all of creation absolutely predestined and therefore random? That's your... That's your battle, if you will. And I asked last Sunday, how does Jesus Christ in Revelation 7 through 11, because he's preaching a sermon, if you wish to think of it that way, the three woes are part of a sermon that he is preaching to the occupants of earth that remain after the bride is taken. He's giving them information and he's giving it to them in this order of these three woes that is amazing. So you can follow his thought process. You want to think like God? You want to think like Christ? Take a look at what he's doing here. Here in Revelation 9 and why he's doing it and you can begin to understand what he, how he thinks of us. And I asked last Sunday, how does Jesus Christ, Christ treat his creation? Does he treat us, speak to us as if we are predestined or does he treat us, speak to us as if we have some kind of free will? Which is it? He would know if we have free will, how did we get it? He has to give it to us. So, Schrodinger, reacting to Niels Bohr primarily. So, Schrodinger is on the side of Einstein, Poldolsky and Rosen. On the other side is John Bell, Niels Bohr, Goodell, and Heisenberg. Schrodinger decides he's going to... Help Einstein, in the position that Einstein has on determinism, prevail against indeterminacy that is with Niels Bohr and the Copenhagen interpretation. Anyone understand what I said? Say no. But eventually, I will beat you into submission. That's the plan. Schrodinger... He does. He again. He's reacting to Niels Bohr primarily on the side of Albert Einstein. The the debate between Niels Bohr and Einstein are is fascinating reading. I would hope that you would you would do so. And so Schrodinger conceived his theoretical cat in a box experiment. It's called Schrodinger's cat. And it's basically a scenario where a cat is placed in a locked box. So I have a locked box. Now, I have no place to put it, so I'll get rid of my three woes. There's a box, and it's locked. And inside, and of course, being the artist that I am, wow, I know you're saying wow. Wow, thank you. There's a cat. He puts a cat in a locked box. The box has a lid, okay? There's a lid, and he locks it with a lock. And it's, if you wish, it is, uh, it doesn't matter. if, Obviously, he allows for the cat to breathe. We'll go ahead and assume that. So, inside this locked box is radioactive particles, or particles. A Geiger counter uh, and a hammer and a mechanical device, if you will, that controls the hammer and a glass uh, capsule that is filled with cyanide. So this is Schrodinger's thought experiment. Now, for the lovers of cats in the vast Internet audience, both of you, hi, Um, no physical living cat was uh, put at risk by Schrodinger. It's just simply his imagination. Schrodinger was attempting to submit a formidable counter argument to the Copenhagen interpretation of superposition. He said, if you wish to think of it this way, that superposed states are a contradiction. They are impossible. Copenhagen. Bohr's group said, no, superposition is a fact of creation. We'll get to what superposition is in a minute, so don't feel bad. I'm just trying to lay the foundation. More to come on all of that. Anyway, back to the box. If the radioactive particle decays, it will emit radiation. If it emits radiation, the Geiger counter will pick it up. If the Geiger counter records radiation... So if I have decay of radioactive particles, the Geiger counter will will detect it and it will activate a mechanical device. The hammer will break the capsule, release the cyanide, and the cat will die. With me so far? I didn't say that totally accurately. I'll get more technical as time goes by. The radioactive particles are such a minute amount... There is an equal probability. And when you get into quantum physics, you find out there is no certainty. There's just probabilities. There's high probabilities, there's low probabilities, but there's never certainty. That's Heisenberg. That's Niels Bohr. It's called uncertainty uh, principle. Okay. Now, the uh, radioactive particles in there might even just be one particle. You can make a box with one particle, or you will. The probability is essentially 50-50. It's in a 50-50 condition. That, and there is a specified time. So whatever time you wish to apply, typically you see one hour. So over one hour, there's a 50-50 chance that that radioactive particle will decay and will emit radioactivity. The Geiger counter will pick it up. The Geiger counter will activate the mechanical device that holds the hammer. The hammer will come down on the capsule that has the cyanide in it. And the cat will be poisoned and die. I will get my... Uh, uh. That hurt. I have to reinforce my energy now. So far as you know, the amount of income we've received has been not measurable. Let's just be kind. That's too bad. So. There is a probability that over this specified time, so let me erase the one hour and I will put the word that is of the most significance. And that will be time. Oh, we love time here. Time is a biblical concept. Very important that you know when any time, any time, that you are talking about time, you are in the Bible. So I have time in this construction here. And over this specified time, there's a possibility, 50-50, that no particle will decay. That particle will not will not emit radiation, or it will. So we don't know. 50-50 chance. So Schrodinger proposed that in this time interval, time interval, the cat was in a superposed state. In other words, he's in... Two states until the system collapses into one or the other state. In other words, it'll collapse into a state of no radiation or it'll collapse into a state of radiation until it collapses into either state decay or no radioactive decay. The cat was suspended. It existed in two states, a superposition, a superposed state. It has two states, an alive and a dead state. Wow. Alive and dead. So the cat in that position or that period or that interval of time, while we are waiting to see whether or not the radioactivity occurs that's measurable, is either alive or dead or both. And Schrodinger proposed that it's both, two states at the same time. Do you remember me asking you this question? Is the cat dead or alive? Does anybody remember me asking that? I've done it a few times now. That is about Schrodinger's concept. That was a covert reference to Schrodinger. Not so covert. Now, to repeat this, Schrodinger saw his own concept as ridiculous. This is the concept of Copenhagen, our boar. This is not Einstein, Poldovsky, and Rosen. Schrodinger puts this together as a means to show that it is ridiculous. He saw his own experiment, thought experiment as ridiculous, absurd. and That was his intent. He was trying to discredit the Copenhagen school's insistence of the existence of superposition or superposed states. Schrodinger was i got to say it right Schrodinger You need more liquid to do that because you spit most of it out when you You're able to say his name correctly Schrodinger was attacking indeterminacy He's attacking superposition Superposition declares that two concurrent states are possible in the universe two concurrent two simultaneous states are possible in the creation, and Schrodinger thought, as did Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, that this was a fantasy. So when you see this, he's not arguing for superposed states; he's arguing against. Now, if something, someone, could be in two conditions at the same time, let's just say something, but I'll go ahead and add someone just so you can get started thinking about it. Then the universe is uncertain. It may not make sense to you now, but consider that if something can be in two positions simultaneously, then I have eliminated certainty. Because I can't identify where it is. I don't know where it is. I can predict the probability of what state it could go to, but I can't predict what it is currently. So I'm in an uncertain position. Now, I should say this really fast. They have taken Schrodinger's cat. They have expanded it now intellectually. They have multiple cats in multiple boxes. So I have all kinds of uncertainty introduced now. Pretty soon we'll all come to church here. We'll make little boxes and we'll have cats and we'll have all of this and we'll make our own experiment. Uh, With or without the cyanide. All of these things, Schrodinger, Einstein proposed uh, something that Niels Bohr eventually tore to pieces uh, with regard to this discussion. Uh, Again, I think that you'll find it fascinating. And when you see how it relates to the Bible, I, I think you'll understand its value to you. Where am I? The theological implications immediately come exploding, to to use Einstein's terminology, out of this. If something can be in two positions at the same time, the universe is uncertain. If the universe is uncertain, there's an implication there that now leaps at you and hits you in the forehead. Uncertainty becomes, or uh, non-determinism indeterminacy becomes a very important aspect of what you think when you begin to recognize its value. Schrodinger was taking the side of determinism, which carries also carries theological and philosophical consequences. So both of these, again, where is the Bible here? Which side is the Bible on? Is it it on indeterminacy? Is it on superposed states or is it on determinacy? On locality or is it on non-locality? If you don't remember any of this stuff, what will I do on Christmas service? I'll repeat all of it for you and your friends. Bring cats. That would be really cool. (laughs) But Schrodinger was taking the side of determinism, and that has theological implications, as does indeterminacy have theological implications. I want you to think, which one... Which one do I, which one do you believe the Bible presents? Is, now this is where I ask, I have a note. Is anyone, anyone, I'll take just one of you, still awake? Okay, let's look. There we go. Four. Not bad. Let the records show we haven't had total collapse into a sleeping state. That's a physics joke. It requires observation. I must observe who is sleeping. It does get better, better. trust me. Well, don't. Don't trust me. Maybe it doesn't. Now, obviously, this entire intellectual skirmish has taken on a new form with Schrodinger. Say it with me, Schrodinger. Very good. Because, you see, he introduces into his discussion life and non-life. And that is a big deal. Life and death. He introduces two states here, doesn't he? A death state and a life state, or live and dead state, life and death. That changes everything, in my unlearned opinion. The entire dynamic has left the arena of physics when you bring in life and death, and is now thrust into Genesis 3, and Revelation 9, and Joel 2. I doubt Schrodinger, say it with me, knew what he had done. I hope that he did. No. I am unable in my research to verify either he could have known or he might not have known. He could be in two simultaneous states. Can I keep doing this? I can. I'm glad four or five of you left. One was a little slower than the rest, but I'll take it. (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness, I worked really hard on that joke. I really did, and I'm glad it had some, some fruition. Anyway, Genesis 3 takes you to Revelation 9, as you know. And I should note that Einstein did not, did not utilize a living soul as a vehicle when he's arguing against Niels Bohr. He used instable Gunpowder, Or an uh, unstable keg of gunpowder, which could collapse into an exposed state or remain in an unexposed, unexploded state. So that's how he did it. Boar went to alive and dead. Boom. See that joke there? That makes an incredible difference. Notice I keep repeating collapse into a state. What causes the cat to be alive or dead? How do we know if the cat is alive or dead? I'll take whatever the audience is willing to, to provide. No more meows. Yeah, in a technical sense, that could be very possible. But what, to, give it, to break it fast to you, somebody's got to unlock the box and look inside. It requires observation. And I'm going to put it this way. conscious. Observation. This is the observer effect. Now we're at Isaac Newton. What causes the collapse to be determined? Observation causes the collapse. Now, some are going to argue about unconscious observation. I'm going to get to that on Christmas. But uh, no one can know if the cat is dead or alive until the box is opened, unlocked, and the cat is observed into whatever state it's in. And again, that leads us to conscious observation or unconscious observation. What is unconscious observation? I'll give it to you really quickly a meter, a camera. But somebody has to read the meter, somebody has to look at the film. See, this is, again, absolute observation or absolute perception. Remember George Berkeley. The one thing that he did, his college named after him is a complete insult to George Berkeley. And they don't know it. I see the hands going up in the back telling me that we're running out of time. Okay, this is so much fun. I know the time just flew by. <laughs> that if it did, I have ruined you all for life. And that is a testimony to my my capabilities that I will will cherish. Um, George Berkeley believed that reality depended on observation. It It depended upon perception. It had to be identified mentally before it could exist. And so uh, Isaac Newton said there must be an absolute observer. There must be an intelligent agency that sees all things simultaneously. Where in any theological treatise does someone identify himself as omniscient? Here. That's it, baby. Omniscience is the purview of Christ and Christ alone, the Godhead, the triune Godhead, the YHVH. Okay, where was I? Schrodinger, say it with me, diverted into consciousness. Did he know it? I hope he did. The cat is, as you might think, conscious and it can observe its situation. So I have a conscious observer in the box. I have conscious observers outside of the box. And so Schrodinger inserted consciousness into this. And that's an immense modification. Introducing consciousness is moving the discussion out of the physical into the supernatural. The cat knows things. And again, we're back to Revelation 9, the first woe. I have a note to repeat the first woe here. Gosh, I need to do it. Reread it as fast as I can. I will go really fast, but let's. This is mostly for the internet audience for those of you who are wondering why I'm doing this. Then the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth to him was given the key to the bottomless pit and he opened the bottomless pit he opened the box didn't he and smoke arose out of the pit in like the smoke of a great furnace So, in other words, the poison is coming out. So the sun, the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads and they were not given authority to kill them. Isn't that fascinating? Can't kill the cats. And they were, and, but to torment them for five months, an interval of time. The torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and there will and death will flee from them. You see, Schrödinger proposed two states, what he defined as a living state and a dead state. Notice how I phrase that. Schrödinger proposed two states, and he defined them as living and dead. Those are his definitions. Jesus Christ, the God Almighty, the Creator of all things, during the fourth, or, I'm sorry, during the first woe, has something in store for Erwin Schrödinger that no one could have considered. For 150 days, everything, all living souls, every conscious thing is in only a living state. There is no death state as as Schrodinger defines living. Again, notice how I'm phrasing that. The dead state is ended as Schrodinger defines dead. The cat is alive as Schrodinger defines alive. Irrespective of the radioactive decay and the cyanide and the hammer, the Geiger counter, the hammer and the cyanide gas can go off, but it doesn't kill the cat in Revelation 9. The cat cannot die, as Schrodinger defines death. The earth has five months and one state. That is a profound piece of information that Christ gives the earth. That's his first woe. What's he saying? Who is he saying it to? Why is he saying it? What causes death to end? The answer is who causes it? But that's just another question. Then the next one would be how does he do it? How does Christ cause life only? What does conscious observation have to do with this? What is the observer effect? Okay, let's back up a bit and run out of time. Just really I'm going to give you stuff. You have what Schrodinger defines as life. Then you have what Schrodinger defines as death. And then you are in an intermediate condition or an intermediate state. Three. Not two. Three. How many woes do I have? I have three woes. Erwin Schrodinger composed a hypothetical for the purpose of dispelling the rising-up notion of superposition within the physics community. That's what he is reacting to, responding to. And that rising-up superposition notion or theory, if you will, theorem, idea, concept, truth, mathematics has proven superposition. And if math is right, then it's likely superposition is right. And superposition or superposed state is the occupying simultaneously, the simultaneous occupancy of two states, two positions. In Schrodinger's model, the the two positions seem contradictory. Death and life seem to be exclusive, a dichotomy. And which is why I chose Schrodinger's life and death for this particular uh, aspect of it. I think that Schrodinger knew it. I hope he did. I think a man of Schrodinger's intelligence would have considered when he brings in life and death the inferences in his supposition. He thought some theology major would grab his cat. He had to think of that. I expect that he did. As all of you are aware, having been bludgeoned without ceasing now for years by me on these subjects, all discussions about life and death are actually discussions about existence and non-existence. The spiritual reality and the physical reality, consciousness and free will. So naturally, when I'm confronted with a hypothesis that produces a two-state scenario and it's life and death, I will instinctively, habitually, I'll, I'll gravitate immediately towards existence. Because that's what I know what's going on here. And I will expect the underlying subject to be existence every time. And that's Genesis 3 and that's Revelation 9. Revelation 9 is the first and second woes, the two woes. The earth is in two states. Revelation 9. A five-month condition and a 13-month condition. The five-month condition has no death. Physical death is revoked. It's rescinded. For 150 days, there's only life, as Schrodinger defines life. What state are the living in? They're in a two-position state. Christ has suspended death. He's tinkered. Did he know Schrodinger would come along with this? He's omniscient, God, outside of time. Outside of time, oh my. So I have a five-month, 150-day period, which is no death. Again, what, what are the people doing in here? What, what condition are they in now? And that's followed by a 13-month, 13, 13 months of massive death, as Schrodinger defines death. Now, remember, of course, Eve at Genesis 3 is in a life-only state, isn't she? So is Adam. And it becomes a death state. So she goes from life to death. Adam goes from life to death. His is a willful decision, so is hers. Is she ever, is Eve or Adam ever in both states simultaneously? How about the people in Revelation 9, 6? Schrödinger has the aspects of time and observation, as he should, deeply involved. It's integral. In, it's, it's engaged in his, integrally engaged in his paradox. Time is especially essential as is observation in this, in Schrödinger's paradox. And that leads to the most obvious of the obvious questions. What exactly is observation? When you are observing something, that's one interesting way to ask, What is? what are you doing when you are observing? What is the cat observing? What is he doing to observe? What is observation? If the cat is determined, in other words, if it is, if it's, Ultimate state is collapsed into a state by observation. What is observation exactly? And ultimately, this is going to cause that argument on conscious observation versus unconscious observation. I'm going to ask this. Is there actually such a thing as unconscious observation? Now, the people in interferometry will tell you that if it's measured by a device, that collapses it from wave to particle returns it from particle to wave. But again, let me say this to you. Is there really such a thing as unconscious observation? Let me uh, put it this way. Is observation an act of will? When you observe, is it a manifestation of free will? When you observe something, how much of your will is involved in your observing? Next comes the second most obvious of the obvious questions. What is the impact of timelessness observation? If I'm timeless, if I'm observing from a frame of reference that is outside of time, is the cat ever dead? Does the cat ever not exist? If physical death Let me keep going. Is a temporal state. Does physical death exist? How long is eternity? How long is physical death? Do the division. Divide infinity by the amount of time that physical death exists. Right now, how long has anyone that you know of been physically dead? My father died 2001. He's been dead 18 years. So I have infinity divided by 18. What's the answer? Not very much time. Oh, let's replace it with 1,800 or 7,000 or whatever you want to put in there. What's the answer? If temporal death... If death is a temporal state, does it actually exist? Does Schrodinger's Schrodinger have a conflict between existence and physical death in his concept, his idea here? The cat is a living soul. The cat has existence. Genesis 1.24 defines the cat as a living soul. The words are, are living beings, identical to how Adam is defined in Genesis 2.7. The words are the same there. Can existence ever become non-existence? What determines existence? The third most obvious of the obvious questions then becomes the final two states. There are two final states to all of this, aren't there? What are they called? One is called the Lake of Fire. The other is called the New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem from above. Those are your two states, the final two estates. Those are eternal states. Does anyone in either of those states uh, lose their existence? No. Why not? Be able to answer why not. I've always seen, I've always evaluated Schrodinger's cat as two substances. The cat has two substances. It has substance dualism. It has a spiritual component and a physical component. So what what Schrodinger is affecting is its physical component. He's not affecting its spiritual component. He cannot. It's a living being. As an aside, as I said before... Um, We will go to mathematics to predict the reality of superposition. But ignoring that for today, are we currently in a life or death state? Which one are you in? What's your definition of life? What's your definition of death? If you decide that you are in a suspended life or death state, how is it resolved to where you are now? collapsed into one of those states. I was going to read Revelation nine twenty through 21. At the end of the second woe, read it when you have time, because this is the end of it. Yay, you all say yay. Say yay to so the Internet audience. Okay, we're done almost. Revelation nine twenty through 21, very mysterious passage. I have these people who have gone through woe one and woe two. At the end of woe two, they start murdering people. They murder people. They went through five months of locust, scorpions, stinging them. They go through 13 months of these other things with snake tails, killing them. At the end of that, they have no repentance, and they start killing people. And they're making idols. And I ask, what are they making idols of? They're worshiping demons, and they're murdering. Who are they worshiping? What are they worshiping? And who are they murdering? And how is murdering people and worshiping demons the logical result of the second woe? We'll solve all of that at the Christmas lecture. Let's rise and be dismissed.